Hello and welcome to the Practical Neurology podcast, the essential guide for the everyday life of all neurologists. Today is a bonus Practical Neurology podcast, which we're releasing in addition to our Editor's Choice podcast for the December edition. Today we're talking about climate change and its effect on neurological disorders and what our responsibilities are in response. I'm Amy Ross-Russell, I'm a neurology registrar training in Southampton and I'm the podcast editor for Practical Neurology. Just a quick reminder, we now produce three podcasts for every edition of Practical Neurology. I record the Editor's Choice podcast with the author of our freely available Editor's Choice article. In addition, the editors of the journal, uh, Professor Phil Smith and Geraint Fuller, take you on a talking tour of each edition in the Editor's Highlight podcast. And Professor Martin Turner from Oxford also produces a fantastic case-based podcast with current trainees Ruth Wood and Zinyu Tai. And in that podcast, they discuss a couple of the fascinating cases which we publish in each edition. All of the podcasts are available on all platforms and links to those are available on the Practical Neurology X feed or they can be found through the link on the Practical Neurology website. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Sanjay Sisodia, who's a Professor of Neurology at the UCL Institute of Neurology and a Consultant Neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. He has a particular clinical and research interest in complex epilepsy and also in the impact of climate change and how we can respond to the challenge that this presents to our generation. Thank you so much for joining me, Sanjay. Thank you for inviting me. Sanjay, can we start just by laying out briefly what it is we mean when we say climate change and what the scale of the problem we're facing is? Yes, thank you, Amy. So I should make clear at the start that I am obviously not a climate scientist. I'm a neurologist like you, Amy, and like, I guess, most of our listeners. But what I've learned from climate scientists is something about how the Earth's climate um, works and what is going wrong with it. It's been known for over a century that there are components of the Earth's atmosphere that are important for the regulation of its temperature. And these components include water vapour, carbon dioxide, and then more recently, man-made products, including, for example, anaesthetic gases. The Earth's atmosphere acts as a blanket so that um, incident sunlight hits the Earth and then is reflected back out into the atmosphere and beyond at different wavelengths. And some of that reflected energy is, if you like, trapped by greenhouse gases within the atmosphere. These include water vapour, carbon dioxide and the other gases I mentioned earlier. And that regulates the temperature of the atmosphere. And my understanding from climate scientists is that that has a really significant effect in maintaining the temperature within which life on Earth has evolved. Without that uh, component of the atmosphere, temperatures on Earth will be much colder. So greenhouse gas effects are fundamental to life on Earth. The problem is that the concentration of those greenhouse gases and new greenhouse gases that we have generated have really shot up. And they've increased something like twofold since the start of the Industrial Revolution. So we're now seeing, for example, atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations of the order of 420 parts per million, 
which is significantly greater than it was before the start of the Industrial Revolution. And uh, again, my understanding is that from climate science work, uh, it's possible to estimate really ancient carbon dioxide concentrations using a variety of different techniques. And it's clear that the atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration has never been this high for at least 800,000 years or more. What that means in turn is that the temperature uh, of the surface of the Earth is increasing. And if you imagine the size of the planet and the size of the surface area of the planet, that's enormous. So an enormous amount of energy is being trapped, an enormous amount of extra energy is being trapped within the atmosphere. And that's what's causing global temperatures to rise. And you asked what the scale of this problem is. I think planetary is really the scale of this problem. We're changing the very environment within which life on Earth has evolved and has been stable for many, many, many thousands of years. You can imagine if we did something like this to the human body, if we change the hydrogen ion concentration from 40 to 80, then that's a huge change in the physiology of the human body. And, and this is equivalent to what we're doing to the planet today. It's an enormous change in its, its, its ecology. And that leads to huge changes in everything around us that we're seeing now as manifestations of climate change. And what, what about the impact of that rising temperature on the body? So how do we normally react to a rising temperature? How do we compensate for that? So thermoregulation, as you all know, of course, is a really complicated process that is neurally mediated and requires sensors um, that allow the body to detect the temperature externally and internally, and then a whole series of effector mechanisms that allow body temperature to be regulated. So some of these effector mechanisms are intrinsic and autonomic, for example, cutaneous vasodilation and sweating, which enables cooling to take place, or shivering, which allows warming to take place. But in addition to that, we've, if you like, outsourced uh, some of our thermoregulatory requirements in that um, we can change our local environment. Um, we can start a fire or open a window um, or these days use heating, air conditioning. We can put clothes on and take clothes off. And so there are lots of different um, mechanisms, uh, both intrinsic and behavioral, uh, that we use to regulate uh, our environment and, of course, in turn, our body temperature. But as we know, thermoregulation is not perfect and neither is it able to manage any external challenge. Um, and we see this, of course, in some of the pathophysiological consequences when the human body is not able to maintain um, temperature within a, a, a very tight range. Thank you. And it's, it's easy to think of examples from neurology where people might have an inability to to re respond to that and to react to that and you've mentioned probable mechanisms for that who do you think are going to be the most vulnerable groups to heat rises or, or potentially unable to cope with that changing environment i think it's an interesting question and the data out there are really quite limited there haven't been many studies of thermoregulation in disease processes. There are some, of course, and we know, for example, that uh, some people with particular types of multiple sclerosis are not able to regulate their temperature as well as uh, other people. 
But you can imagine that um, involvement of any component of the thermoregulatory process would lead to challenges to regulation of body temperature and involvement of any processes that meant that you were not able to respond appropriately behaviorally would also lead to compromise of, of body temperature. And this is going to be an issue, especially in the context of heat waves, where there are acute changes in temperature, acute rises in temperature that people have to cope with. So you can imagine that if you have impaired cognitive function, you may not detect um, that the temperature is rising, you may not realize that action needs to be taken. Uh, if you have mobility problems, you may not be able to take the appropriate actions, even if you know what they might be. And if bodily function is further impaired as a result of the pathophysiology of disease, as for example in multiple sclerosis, then you may not be able to take that action specifically in the context of rising external temperatures. But there are a whole range of other um, neurological conditions where you can imagine or there is some evidence that there would be impaired resilience to external challenges like heat waves. So, for example, in certain epilepsies, we know that seizure frequency can be increased by a change in ambient temperature. And we know that certain medications that are used can also compromise that ability. So, for example, uh, topiramate and zanismide can affect sweat production. And we know that some neuroleptic agents can also affect thermoregulatory performance. So I think really a wide range of diseases are likely, the neurological diseases are likely to be challenged by um, climate change and especially by heat waves. Yes, and challenges right across the board from behavioural management to pharmacology and, and decisions regarding appropriate treatments as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I think the real concern actually is when all of these different elements can combine together to create um, really serious difficulties for people with neurological diseases. And for example, if you consider some of the rare severe epilepsies, such as uh, Dravet syndrome, um, which is a rare developmental and epileptic encephalopathy, which affects about one in 15,000 individuals, there are a whole range of problems that people with this condition have that will compromise their ability to cope, for example, particularly with heat waves. So we know that the underlying pathophysiology is due to a problem with the function of um, a sodium channel, and both the native and mutant sodium channels um, are exquisitely sensitive to ambient temperature. We have some evidence to suggest that um, thermoregulation may be compromised in this condition and certainly autonomic function can be compromised in this condition. We know that cognitive ability is typically impaired in this condition and there can be mobility problems. And we know that sometimes the drugs that are used can further compromise thermoregulation. So you can see that all of these different problems in the same individual can multiply the consequences of a heat wave uh, and really make life very difficult. And anecdotally, we know that, that the carers of people with Dravet syndrome report that uh, um, management of the condition uh, during, during heat waves is a real challenge. Yeah. Do you think we, we might see more patients presenting, perhaps those with, with mild neuropathies or mild multiple sclerosis or, or perhaps uncovered channelopathies? Do you think there may be more people that present and, and become diagnosed with neurological disease? I think that's a really interesting question, actually. Um, and, you know, that raises the issue of, of 
if you like, latent pathophysiologies that only emerge when systems are challenged. Um, and I think there are, you know, there are a number of examples of these. We see this with cardiac channelopathies, for example. Uh, and I can see that the same would be possible with neurological channelopathies, including myopathies due to channel dysfunction. So I think that's absolutely right, that we may be seeing entirely new presentations of disease as a result of the extraordinary uh, environmental changes that we're facing. Yeah, and there's another angle to that as well, isn't there? Because, of course, climate change is affecting all life on the planet, in, including vectors for disease and, and animal reservoirs of disease. Presumably, we're, we should expect to see rising rates of neurological zoonoses and, and potentially the UK will be seeing a, a new spectrum of disease. I think that's right. And, you know, that's, that's, I think, really concerning because we're going to see populations that have never been exposed to these conditions or not for a significant period of time now experiencing new conditions uh, to which they, they have maybe very little resilience. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, we're seeing, for example, the spread of West Nile virus uh, to regions that have never previously been affected. There's a lot of evidence for the spread uh, of tick-borne encephalitis, um, and yes. uh, other such infections uh, in parts of the world that have not seen these conditions before. Yes, absolutely. I was really interested to read the the effects of just small increases in temperature, so two degrees, I think you say, uh, having a profound impact on neuronal gene expression. And I wondered whether you th what impact you think those changes in temperature could, could have on sort of evolution of human brains, whether you think our genome is going to change and whether you think that our brains are going to fundamentally adapt, I suppose, to, to changes in ambient temperature? Um, that's another really interesting question. So obviously this has happened already over time. We've seen how there's been large-scale population migration. Humans inhabit so many niches around the world um, being able to live, you know, from the Arctic to the equator. Uh, and that has required a number of changes, some behavioural, obviously, but also um, some evolutionary. And we know that there are a range of genetic variants which have differential distribution around the world and which relate to uh, local or regional climatic conditions. So that has already happened that's happened over an evolutionary timescale. We're now talking about changes occurring over decades. And I think that's something that we can't expect evolution to be able to match. In addition to which, of course, you know, amongst the many consequences of climate change, we're going to see, and we're already seeing to some extent, mass migration. So people um, moving from one region to another region uh, the climate of which they may not be accustomed to. And, and that's certainly not going to be something for which, you know, evolutionary adaptation processes are going to be operating. In the longer term, I, I think your question is really interesting, whether there may be shorter term and longer term adaptations. We know that uh, people can adapt to temperatures. You may, for example, go on holiday to a region that's much hotter than you're used to. And that will be difficult for the first few days. But within four to seven days, uh, people can adapt. And um, 
whether we're going to be able to see that sort of phenomenon help us through uh, climate change, I think is an open question. But I don't know that evolutionary adaptation uh, will come to our rescue. That's really interesting. Let's talk about what we can do. And you separate that really nicely into what we can and should do for our patients. But you also discuss more broadly the role we can play in reducing climate change. And I'll just highlight for listeners, there's a fantastic table three listing all of the things that we can do with, uh, well, maybe not all of the things we can do, listing many of the things we can do with relevant links. But let's just discuss them a little too. Sanjay, firstly, our patients, how do you approach this with patients in clinic? Do you talk to them about the impact of the weather on their condition? Do you think that we should be writing emergency action plans for patients or or should we just be directing them to the available online resources and, and seeing what comes up? Well, I think probably a combination of those things. And I guess we're all used to doing these things, aren't we? We all have to have difficult discussions in our own specialist areas about the potential implications of diagnoses um, and and the treatment of neurological conditions. For example, in epilepsy, we will often be having challenging discussions, for example, about SUDEP, the risk of, of sudden death associated with epilepsy. And I think we're all used to introducing these topics in a sensitive way, Uh, judging when during a consultation or a series of consultations is the right time to do this, maybe uh, developing opportunities that open up during a conversation. Um, And there's an example of this uh, in the paper. But, you know, these things happen when, for example, there might have been a heat wave recently and it would be a perfectly reasonable conversational thing to do to just ask how somebody found the heat wave and whether it presented them with any particular challenges and then to develop that idea. And increasingly, I'm finding that actually when you do this, people do tell you all sorts of things um, that they are already doing that we just don't know about because I think generally we haven't been used to asking that. And also because I think, understandably, patients, carers, families think that there's actually not very much that we can do as their doctors what can we do about a heat wave? And so, uh, you know, people may choose not to speak about those things and not to raise them. I think it's important to give people that opportunity um, and then to discuss, uh, you know, actions that can be taken and those may be actions that you take in preparation for a heat wave or during a heat wave and then more broadly about what the longer term might hold. Heat waves are one acute adverse weather manifestation of climate change. But we know that overall, temperatures are going to rise. There are going to be all sorts of other changes for which people can begin to think and plan. And I see this actually as part of our overall duty of care. And you raised the idea of incorporating actions into rescue protocols, for example. Uh, so again, so from you know my own field, Um, almost all the people that we see with epilepsy will have some form of rescue protocol. Uh, And I think it's not unreasonable to think about including within that rescue protocol what people might try to do during or leading up to a heat wave. Uh, For example, whether it might be appropriate to add uh, uh, treatment with benzodiazepines for a short period of time during a heat wave if that person experiences a significant increase in seizures with heat waves. Um, And then I think, you know, you asked more broadly what we can do. I think that neurologists do have a voice. 
in the healthcare system. They have a voice more broadly. Um, and that's something that we should be thinking about using, having discussions with our trusts, having discussions with charities that we may work with, having discussions more broadly um, in our uh, you know, social lives, raising these issues and raising awareness so that people start thinking about climate change and what they can do. Thank you. That's that's fantastic. I'm just going to highlight for, for listeners, uh, many of those things contained in some of the really fantastic tables that are in the paper. So, so table one, some resources available for information guidance and data on climate change and healthcare. Table two, some specific advice and guidance for patients with neurological diseases that we can direct people to. And, and then table three, more of a summary of the things that we can do as neurologists uh, to, to help and, and thinking about that in, in a broad sense. Sandy, was there anything that you wanted to add, any additional comments that you had, any, any message you wanted to sort of send out to the neurological world? Um, I think... I do see this as part of our duty of care for people with neurological diseases. We're really privileged, I think, aren't we, to do the jobs that we do, to be able to try and help people, to listen to problems, to try and find solutions. And now we're all in a global emergency, really. We are seeing the climate change around us. We see this daily in the news with some, you know, unusual weird weather event somewhere in the world, floods, wildfires, droughts, storms, all sorts of things. And if we are thinking about um, providing the people that we see with neurological diseases with the best care, with the best information, then I think we also do need to be thinking about climate change. If we, if we think back to the pandemic not that long ago, you know, we were called upon to do all sorts of things, but amongst the things that we did was to provide advice to people with particular conditions, for example, in our own expert or interest areas, about managing during the pandemic, about the risks and benefits of vaccination. That was part of our duty of care, in my opinion. And I think climate change really is, in, is a similar challenge, a much bigger a much longer-lasting challenge, a challenge that, you know, we've been watching uh, develop and we know is going to get worse. And there are things that we can do about it and, and we should do those things. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your energy in talking about this, Sanjay. It's been, it's been really inspiring. It's been really educational and, and also incredibly eye-opening to, to think through the impact that climate change is already having, um, but will we'll continue to have on not just our planet and our patients, but also our neurological practice. Thank you. I hope listeners have enjoyed that as much as I have. Um, perhaps taken away some inspiration or some ideas of ways that this might change your practice. As always, we'd love to hear any comments on this or on any of our podcasts via our iTunes page or via the PNX account. Do listen to our other fantastic podcasts if you haven't already. And remember, you can subscribe on any podcast platform to make sure that you never miss an episode. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to Professor Sanjay Sisodia. Thanks, Sanjay. Thank you very much, Amy.